Okay, folks, um, good morning. And uh, we're going to kind of share things between us this morning. The big Father's Day, uh, we've got similar but very different stories to tell. But we're going to introduce ourselves first of all. My name's Ivan. Um, we come into Clark Vineyard about, about nine years, I think, eight, nine years. Along with Gail, uh, we help out on the leadership team, and I'm involved with the directors, which is incredibly boring, <laughs> but incredibly important, Paul. Uh, by the way, Paul, uh, we've got the microphones now, and you can't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> this is 40 minutes of revenge coming up. Yeah, I've got to be serious now. Um, so, uh, alongside that, I help out with the mentoring uh, program in Tyke uh, Works Academy, which again ties into what we're talking about this morning. Um, you want to introduce yourself, Sergi? Sure. Hi, I'm Sergi. Popular Archie? No. Oh, anyway, that hasn't worked. <laughs> My name's not really Sergi. Uh, you'll hear Paul when he's being serious uh, talk about Mark. Believe it or not, that's not even my first name. Does anyone know what my real name is? Gary. Gary. <laughs> Why does that get a laugh? Um, so I'm actually Gary Mark, but I've all, always been known as Mark, uh, and that's me. So just as a little indulgence um, before we start, can we say a huge thank you to the worship team this morning? That was a powerful time of worship. So it was I actually feel like a wee bit of a proud dad. So I do, you know, because that's my wee baby, so I my all grown up and Mark Gardy obviously has you know, been there for a while. Um, but yeah, so thank you to the worship team this morning. Hi. Okay. So uh think about Father's Day this morning and um, just coming back to our the theme of our teaching over the last wee while. So what's the dream? What's the dream when it comes to Father's Day? to put this in context what does God want for us as his children a couple of verses just to put it in the context of how God feels about his children and how God views himself as a father Psalm 68 5 and 6 says his name is the Lord he's a father to the fatherless a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And the important bit, God sets the lonely in families. And another psalm, and I'm reading this one from the message because it really struck home to me during the week. My father and mother walked out on me and left me but God took me in. That's the dream. That we shouldn't be alone. That we shouldn't be orphans. That we shouldn't be lost children. We need to be loved. We need to be fathered. We need to be mothered. We need to be parented. We need to know who we are. Where we belong. We need not to be afraid. But the reality often isn't the same as the dream. We live in a broken world. 
We live in a world that's full of lost children, full of orphans, children who need mothers, who need fathers, children who don't know where they belong, maybe children who don't know who they are. We're going to hear from two of those children this morning. Badly behaved children sometimes. But Sergi and I are going to share our stories this morning. They're, they're very similar and they're very different. But just keep in mind, we're thinking about what is the dream. and We're thinking about God as our Father. So Sergi's going to go first. I'm maybe going to stop him and ask him a question or two along the way. And then I'm going to go after and he's going to do the same. And then we're just going to put it together at the end. So please be patient with us. We'll try to be as brief as we can. But remember, we're sharing things that are passionate to us. We're sharing who we really are. So please bear with us this morning. And we hope you find it helpful. Okay. So a little bit about my story and my background. Um, I wasn't always the well-adjusted guy you see now. Um, so I'd expect that to get more of a laugh, to be honest. Um, so I was born on the 2nd of May, 1978, which makes me 44, unbelievably. Um, I grew up in a house that was a wee bit different. So in the house was my granny, my granda, my mum, my two aunties, my uncle and me in a three-bedroom council house. So try and work that one out. Uh, so, I don't know how they squeezed everyone in. The third bedroom was a box room, uh, which I shared with my uncle, who was probably, I think he was 14 or 15 when I was born. Um, and I shared a room with him for 16 years. My bed was a pull-out bed. Um, my granda was there for a number of years. He moved out when I was still quite young. Um, and. Uh, it wasn't really there, didn't really do anything for us. Um, my aunt, one of my aunts moved then into the room with my granny, so they had two single beds in there. My mom shared with her other sister, my other aunt, and then there was me and my uncle in the box room. Um, my uncle um, was an alcoholic and used to come back and we had some great chats on a Friday night after he had been to the pub. Um, he had a love for music, which he got me into. I love Dire Straits and Eric Clapton, which is all down to him. But one thing that was missing through all of this was a father. You may say, where was my father in this? Well, the story starts actually a couple of years before I was born. My mum, as a newly qualified nurse in the 70s, went to Spain on holiday, her first ever foreign holiday away. And she was there with uh, four other girls and her. So they arrived in Spain late one in Saturday, Sunday evening, and the first thing you do when you go to Spain on your first ever foreign holiday, what do most of the girls want to do? Just think, go out, go to a bar, go to a nightclub. No, the, the other four girls decided they wanted to go to mass. Okay, wouldn't be my first choice on a Sunday night as a woman in Spain. She managed to talk, what if my mom wasn't for having mass at all. So she decided, no, I'm gonna hit a club. So what she talked one of the other girls into it. So three of the girls went off to mass and my mum and this other girl went to a club. My mum literally walked in, bought her first ever drink in Spain. Some weird Spanish guy walked up to her and did this. Just put his hand out. And that was the start of a three year relationship. He didn't speak a word of English. My mum didn't speak a word of Spanish. But somehow they communicated 
for the next number of years. And three years later, after my dad had done his uh, stint in the Spanish Navy, mum turned pregnant with me, at which stage she said, move to North Ireland, it's a great place. Now those of you that remember sort of the 70s, <laughs> wound, things go, no, maybe not. Uh, he said, move to Spain with me. Um, you know, my mum goes, I don't speak Spanish. I'm a newly qualified nurse. I want to work and get a career. I'm all right, thanks. Um, so that was the end of that relationship. And that's where that then broke up. So I didn't grow up really knowing my dad at all. Um, I wasn't really, wasn't really talked about in my house. It was just, I didn't have a dad. And that was me. I was normal. People said, Who's your dad? I don't have a dad. I was always a bit darker than a lot of the other kids hanging around. I was one of these kids that thought about the sun and went brown. It was great. I've now got vitiligo, which stops that, unfortunately. Um, but I had a nice suntan most of the years, and I always knew there was something a wee bit different about me. And I sort of had this inkling that it might be Spanish. But um, when I first met him, was we kept going on holiday to Spain, but my mum had no contact with him at that stage. My dad then went on, got married, had a couple of kids with his, with his wife, and I had no contact with him at all. And we were on holiday, and my mum had kept writing letters to his old house, just in case, saying, look, we're coming over if you would like to meet your son. This is an opportunity. And nothing had ever happened, but I think 1987, we were over, and being the, the, an only child and, you know, quite outgoing, as you can see, um, I made friends with people. So me and me and this guy Ben from England became friendly. We had this great idea of throwing bottles of Coke, empty bottles, glass bottles of Coke from the 10th floor of the uh, apartment block we were staying in into an abandoned swimming pool. We thought this was great fun. So one didn't break and we thought this is amazing. So we picked it up, ran through the lobby of the hotel to take it back up the top and it smashed all over the floor and we scattered. We were like, right, we're gone, we've made a mess. And about 10 minutes later, there was a knock on my apartment door, and I opened the apartment door to this Spanish guy going, oh my goodness, this is the manager of the hotel, I'm in so much trouble. And I looked right at my mum's face, which was like this. And at that point I went, that'd be my dad. I just knew then, still had never had a conversation with my mum, but I just knew straight away by her reaction that that was my dad. Can I just ask you, Sergio, how did you know? <laughs> I don't, her face, I think, gave it away. Um, I just knew, I sort of, I sort of knew I was, for some reason, Spanish. Why do we always go to Spain? Why did my mum love Spain so much? And things like that. And there was always sort of quiet whispers in the house about Spain and things like that. So I knew there was something going on. And was it, was it a good feeling? Or was it a bad, or was it, you're not sure? It was, it was almost a confirmation of, yeah, okay. I sort of get it now a wee bit. We still didn't have that conversation until maybe a couple of years later. And I remember we'd actually taken my granny away for her, I think it must have been her 60th birthday. We took her to Spain. It was her first ever foreign holiday. And I was sleeping on the bed when my mum and granny were talking. And I heard my granny say, you're going to have to tell him who his dad is. You know, he's, he's 11 or 12 now, you need to tell him. And I remember my mum coming shaking, said, I need to tell you. She's like, I don't know. Your guy will be a couple of years with that's my dad. I know. It's okay, I've got it. Um, but we still had no contact after that, so we didn't, and I'd never seen him. And for me, I parked that. I just said, that's me, that's who I am, that's normal. And all these other people who had dads was a bit weird, but 
It took me a long time to realize that it actually had a massive impact on me, but I might come on to that in a wee bit. Okay. Oh, all right, go now, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, as I said, I sort of dealt with that. I, I sort of boxed that away. And I used to think that it never affected me. And for years, people say, you, you know, are you okay? It must have affected you not having a dad. I don't know. It never really did. I think I'm, I'm pretty okay. And um, it was actually when we started coming here, really, uh, I, I was more challenged that that was something that I needed to deal with. I love our tagline. You know, we're a place of hope where lives are changing. This is, this is a place where my life has changed, and I hope that, you know, I'd like to think I'm an example of that. Um, and I came, and I remember Paul sitting down to me going, you've got a lot of baggage, you need to sort out. <laughs> and I went, really? I think I'm perfectly fine with adjusting. Um, to which he was 100% right. And he, really, that was the first time I'd been challenged about my past, about my father, um, about the impact. And I looked back on it and thought, okay, there's things that I missed out on. But I had lots of examples of fathers in my life. Um, I had friends, dads, who were amazing. Um, anyone knows Causeway Coast Vineyard, you'll know Ricky Wright, who is Compassion Director, I don't know, President or something up there now, of Compassion. Uh, he's my best friend growing up. His father was great, and, you know, showed a lot of examples. When I started dating my amazing wife, Philippa, her dad is the most self-sacrificial man I think you'll ever meet. Um, he has done everything for his kids. Great example of father. But I never had that. I never had that personal feeling. I was carrying around a lot of this baggage with me. Um, and it was a weight that I didn't really realize I had. And I needed to deal with that. So anyone who was here four years ago on Father's Day would hear me saying that I've got in contact with my dad and I'm going to meet him. We got together on Facebook, believe it or not, the wonderful word of Facebook. And through that, just communication, um, I've been able to work see him and meet him. Um, I would love to say that it's been great, but there's been more hurt. There's been more let down from that as well. Even just two months ago, um, things have happened and we're not really communicating much anymore. Um, but it's baggage that I've dealt with. It's baggage that I knew I had that God told me I needed to work on. And do you know what the great part of it? It's baggage I've been able to leave down. People use the expression, you know, leave things at the foot of the cross. I, I really feel like I've been able to do that. And when further pain and hurt comes up, it's easy just to pass it on and just put it on the pile instead of the cross and just move on from it. So that's a little bit about me and where I'm at now. How do you think, um, obviously you're a father now. Hmm. Uh, you lovely girls. And I like to think so. You just adore you. Mm. But, <laughs> you know, but you can see, you can see that you're a very close family unit. You can really see that. It's very obvious. Um, your experiences of eventually meeting your father and how that all turned out. Would you say, I don't want to ask it one way or the other, I'm just trying to ask it openly. Um, how do you feel your experience and your past has had an effect on the sort of father that you eventually became? Yeah, so I thought I was, those of you who don't know my background work-wise, I'm a, I'm a children's nurse. 
I love kids. I love working with kids. So whenever my wife said she's pregnant, I thought I knew everything about kids. And I thought I was ready to go. And to be honest, when they're sick, I'm pretty good. I know exactly what dose of paracetamol and ibuprofen to give to them. I'm pretty good at closing headwinds with staples um, and things like that. But I had no idea what being a father was. I had no sort of, while I had the examples around me, um, I didn't have that personal example. And it took a long time to get to where I wanted to, to be. And, and for me, the key was um, being there and showing up. So the thing I remember is I played rugby when I was at school and when I was sort of in my early late teens and early 20s. And my mom saw me play once in that whole period. And all everyone else had dads usually on the side of the pitch. And I always said that if I had kids, I'm going to be there for them. So when Eve, who's in the back somewhere probably, when she played hockey, I was the hockey dad. Um, I'm now dance dad. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I go to all the dance. Paul's laughing because he's got a daughter who does dance as well. So you get, there's dance moms, there's dance, I'm one of the very few dance dads out there. So I wanted to be there for my kids and, and I try to encourage them and let them live out their dreams. We we're talking about what's the dream. Um, I want my kids to fulfill the dreams that they have and put nothing in the way to stop them. As I grew up, I was relatively limited. You know, we were from a working class council estate background. We were relatively limited in what we could do. And I want to give my kids every opportunity. And I was encouraged to do whatever I wanted. As Philip will testify, I've had every career under the sun. Um, and ended up going to university for 11 years, but that's a whole other talk. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I want to be the kind of, for me, it's about being there. And people laugh because I do travel for my job, but um, I'm there when, when they need me to be there and uh, try and be there for them with all the big events. Okay, thank you, Sergey. Believe it or not, I don't understand how the sound business all, all works, but I actually haven't heard anything Sergey has said. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping I ask the questions at the right moment. <laughs> I think because we are behind the speakers, I, 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 I'm not too sure. Sergey and I met up a couple of weeks ago and we kind of shared our stories with each other. Um, so, is there anything more you want to you want to you want to share? Just one thing briefly, I'm very wary of time, is that um, I really struggle with the concept of God the Father because I had no aspect of the Father of what God is or what sorry, my own father was. So for me, God was this distant, not there not really present, not taking part of my life. That's what God was for me. And thankfully over the last seven, eight years, I've come to know the proper God the Father, what he really is, and realized that that's the right one. And what I had wasn't the way it was meant to be. It was meant to be a different way. And God showed me that. So that's just the last week that I wanted to add in. Still can't hear him, but I'm sure that was really good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, look, I'm just going to move on quickly. We've, we've both kind of tried to, to keep our stories as brief as we possibly can. There's so much more we could both share. I have so many, you know, coincidences and anecdotes and things that happened along the way in my journey. I'm not going to go through them all today. I'm just going to quickly go over how 
that all happened. But let me just start by saying Father's Day is quite a poignant day for us. Um, just Father's Day exactly five years ago was the last day that we spent with my dad. Um, my, my dad who brought me up because he was dying in hospital. We spent Father's Day with him, sitting with him. And a couple of hours before he died, he slipped into unconsciousness. Um, and we thought he was, he was, he was, he, you know, we thought he was going. But he was very troubled. For some reason, he was agitated, he was troubled. He tossed and turned, he couldn't seem to let himself go. And the nurse who was with us said, look, there's something holding him back. He's struggling with something. And Gail and I talked to my dad for quite a while, and Gail would have been very, very close to him. I think he preferred Gail to either me or my brother, to be honest. Um, but we repeatedly said over and over to him, reminded him, told him that we loved him, told him that he'd been a good man and a good father, and that everything was all right. And we said it over and over, and a wee while he relaxed. And a short time after that, he passed away. The everything that we knew was troubling him was what I want to share very, very quickly with you this morning. Um, I had a very happy childhood. I grew up in North Belfast in Ardoin uh, with my mum and my dad and I had a younger brother. Um, by the way, I've left a lot of details out because I'm just conscious Northern Ireland's a small place. Um, my brother was two years younger than me. Uh, my mum and dad were really good parents. They, they, like all parents probably, most parents, they sacrificed a lot. To, to give us what we needed and all that sort of stuff. And I had everything that I needed as a child, but there was something missing. And it was very hard to, to put my finger on what it was, but as I grew and understood more, it became more and more obvious. From as early as I can remember, I had a really deep sense of just not belonging just not somehow knowing who I was. Um, I had no explanation for it. I was cared for and loved in, in every possible way. But my dad was a dad in, in the 1960s and men in the 60s didn't express, didn't express love to their, their children probably the way that we try to do now. Um, there were clues if I only could see them. When I look back, I could see how the clues all came together. For example, the old black and white photo albums that some of you are old enough to remember. When I looked at the photo albums, I appeared as a tiny baby in the albums. You know, mum and dad had brought me home and I was really tiny. My brother appeared as a toddler. At the time, I didn't really think about it. When I look back on it now, I can see there was something wrong there. My brother it was younger than me, but he, he, was, he was bigger. He was more like Sergi's size. He was dark. <laughs> he was swarthy. He had thick black hair, whereas I had long, wavy blonde hair, obviously. <laughs> and we, we just weren't 
we just weren't close. There was no connection between us, and there never was. And so on. I grew up, that feeling of not belonging, not fitting in, not being part of things, somehow, that followed me, followed me into school, followed me eventually into, into church and into youth organizations like, you know, BB. I struggled very often with friendships. I just struggled to feel that I fitted in, to feel that I belonged, and I didn't know why. It just didn't make sense. Um, but it never went away. I understand now that when a child, when a baby is taken away from its mother very early on, it leaves a trauma. It's called the primal wound. It leaves a space, it leaves a gap. It hurts. And that hurt continues throughout your life, even if you don't recognize it. Whenever I was about 14 or so, I became a Christian and got involved in church. Uh, I went to the church in Belfast where Leslie attended, uh, in North North Belfast. And one of the nicest things about coming here for the first time was that Leslie met us at the door. That was brilliant. Um, so I became involved in Christian things and youth work children's work and outreach teams and all of that stuff. Eventually I ended up, you know, leading and speaking and teaching and so on. But my intimate relationship with God wasn't really there. There, there wasn't much intimacy there and I understand now that was because my father, who brought me up, was always there, was always in control, made sure everything was as it should be, but there wasn't a real intimate relationship there and I, I understand now that our relationship with God is sometimes defined by our relationship with our, our earthly fathers. A little bit later, Gail and I were going out together. And as you do when you're going out together, you, particularly the fellas, you know, you share all that intimate stuff and you think that will make her, make her, you know, you, you know what I mean. You think it'll convince her that you're the man, you know. Um, and I shared with Gail some of those feelings. I said, I feel like I'm, I don't know, I think I must be adopted or something. Now, Gail's family grew up near my family off the Woodville Road. And Gail said, yeah, you are. <laughs> um, and what? So, everybody knew. Everybody knew that my brother and I were adopted. But nobody had ever told us. For, for good reasons. That was, that was just the way it was. In 1960, in Belfast, my mum and dad were probably given this baby and told, make this baby your own. And that's what happened. So they decided themselves, and I respect their decision and still do, not to tell us. Jump forward um, another 10 years or so. I was teaching by now. We were married. We had two small children. We were living in Dundonald. And during the Easter holidays, sorry, Gail and I decided there and then, look, we just leave this. I'd love to find out more. I'd love to find out who I am, where I came from, but we'll just leave it and we'll think about it later on. So 10 years or so later, it came up again. It never really went away, but we were off for Easter and a drama came on TV and it was about the Magdalene laundries. It was a three-part drama called Sinners. It's really powerful. And I found myself watching it and I found myself really emotional. And I found myself in tears. And I remember thinking, I wonder, 
Was I one of those sort of babies? Was I left like that or something? I don't know. I didn't know. Moved forward again another few years later, and I, I moved in my teaching job and was teaching in Kalibaki. That was an education. <laughs> our son was applying for his student loan, and the student loans people came back and said, We need a letter to me and said, We need your, your full birth certificate. So I sent away for that, and it came back. And for the first time I saw in black and white, Ivan Henry Skinner, sorry about the middle name, but came back for the first time and said, Ivan Henry Skinner adopted some of, and then my parents' names. And for the first time, it wasn't just something Dale had told me, it wasn't just something I thought about, it was there in black and white. And that, we, we chatted about it together, and that prompted me to, to, to begin to find out more. I wanted to know where I came from and who I was, who my parents were, and why I was adopted. So I made inquiries and I, I was given an appointment with a social worker in Ballymena. And I went down after, after school one day. The way teachers finish at three o'clock every day. Um, I went down. Part of time. Any <laughs> question about that? <laughs> and, um, I went in to see this young, really lovely young, young social worker, but she was nervous. She asked me a few questions about why I wanted to find out more. And she said, right, I'm going to give you a little piece of paper. I'm rushing on here, I'm conscious of time. I want to give you a little piece of paper. And on it, there are two names. And then she said, I'm going to go and make us a cup of coffee. <laughs> so she kind of ran into the room. And I picked up the piece of paper. And there were two names on it. One was Patricia Campbell Gemmell. And that was my birth mother. The other name was Anthony Stephen Gemmell, and that was me. And that was quite incredible. At last, I knew at least who I was. Didn't know any more than that. I, she, she arranged for me to come back in about three weeks' time, and in the meantime, she did some more searching. And she accessed my adoption file. Now, legally, from your adoption file, you're only allowed information that, that relates only to you. So I came back for my next appointment and she, she said, I've got a sheet of paper for you. And it was an A4 page and there were about 15 lines on it. And she said, that's all I'm able to tell you about your birth and, and your parents and so on. So Patricia, Campbell Gemmell, or Pat, as I came to know her, was my, was, was my mother. Pat had been 18 and had worked in, in Stormont in the Department of Finance, and she became pregnant. And in those days, when you were pregnant in Stormont, you had to leave, had to leave work. And she was 18 anyway. She lived with her mother and her grandmother in a house in South Belfast. And uh, her mother basically took control of the whole situation. And Pat was sent to England to have this baby. And the idea was that the baby would stay in England. Um, but I escaped. <laughs> Pat, for some reason, Pat decided to come back home. And I was born in a little private nursing home on the Antrim Road, which is now a post office. 
Um, I was very premature. I was only about two and a half pounds when I was born. Uh, I was born the third, the third of August, nineteen sixty, and from the third of August, I was in the Royal Maternity Hospital until the twenty seventh of November. So I was there for what, you know, three or four months, and then I was adopted by by my parents at the end of November. But the last line on that page really knocked me for six. Because the very last line said, from the beginning of August until the end of November, Patricia and her mother visited the baby every week. And that just really got to me. That just made me feel, number one, this wasn't done lightly. And number two, Whoever Pat was didn't really want to give up this baby. So that moved me from just wanting to know what happened to wanting to meet Pat if she was still alive. So I'm trying to rush on now. The search for Pat took about three more years after that. And eventually I met Pat face to face. I don't have time to go into the circumstances of how I tracked her down. We just said it was hard. But Pat and her husband, who wasn't my father, were living in Whitehead, um, not very far away from here. And eventually we met face to face for the first time. It was a bit like that long lost families program, you know. And we met in the Quality Hotel in Carrick here on Good Friday morning, 2004. It was strange. We both had lots of questions and we got answers to our questions. I don't have time to go into what those questions were, but the obvious one for me was who, who, is, who is my father? And I found out that Pat had gone out with a guy called Bill, who was a painter in the shipyard. Pat's family were sort of golf club people. No offense to any golf truck people in the room. But Bill just didn't fit with Pat's family. Um, they were kind of, you know, he was a painter from Sandy Road. And uh, as it turned out, I found out later that they were kind of all, you know, fur coats and some missing underwear. Um, <laughs> but Pat gave me the only photograph she had of Bill of my father. It was an old crumpled black and white photograph with bits missing. I still have it obviously. And when I looked at the photograph and when I looked at Pat, I could see that I looked like both of them. So to rush on, we knew Pat then for about five years. And her her husband she had married, sorry, Bill had been killed. My my father had been killed in 1965 um, in an accident. And Pat had married a man called Hugh, and he, I suppose he was my stepfather in a sense. So we knew Pat for about five years, and then she she had cancer before I met her. The cancer came back, and she died um, just about five years after I met her. But we had a lot of time together. We had a lot of time to talk and to get the story and all the rest of it. And just before she died, I had. Privilege of 
being able to talk to her once in hospital, just before she went into, into a coma and she went to the hospice. And in that short conversation, I was able to say the things I needed to say. And she did the same. And everything was okay. And then I spent her last week with her in the hospice. And Hugh and I sat with her. And I was sitting with her when she died. And after she had died, Hugh and I went in to have a cup of tea. It was about three in the morning. And he said, right now, we've got a plan past funeral. He said, and I want you and Gail to be standing with me at the funeral. And that was a big thing. Because apart from Hugh and two other friends of Pat's, nobody else knew I existed in the, in the world, which was quite incredible. And again, Northern Ireland is a small place. After Pat died, we, we, we looked after Hugh and, and cared for Hugh for about another five years. And then Hugh passed away. Um, again, we were very, very close to, very, very close to both of them. Now, all of this was separate and secret from my mum and dad who brought us up because we decided they had made their decision and we respected it. Uh, and so it was kind of slightly awkward. And even thinking about Father's Day and thinking about my dad, I still almost feel a little bit guilty talking about the other stuff as if it's been done behind his back. But let's just quickly go back to the dream as we finish off. Because God is in the business of loving his children. As we've said, being a father to the fatherless and a mother to the motherless. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, uh, How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. This morning's not just about Sergi and I. Every single one of us is a lost child, a fatherless child. Every single one of us is wondering who we are, where we belong. We want to be loved and parented. We want not to be afraid. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 reminds us, <coughs> long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. That's the dream. God has done that for us and he wants us to do what he does. To be fathers, to be mothers, to those who need to know his love. We're in the business of living out the dream in all the things that we do here for our kids in next door, for the kids in school that we after in the mentoring program, all the compassion and community stuff that we do, it's all about fathering and mothering children and people who are lost. It's not just for Father's Day, it's who God wants us to be. In a wee minute, Dave is going to come up and we're going to have the time for prayer. The, the worship band are going to sing another song that puts a lot of that into words far better than I can. But just keep this thought in your mind as we, as we finish. Somewhere deep in the DNA of every human being is a memory of a garden, of walking in the garden, of hearing our Father walking in the garden, of hearing our Father's voice calling for us. 
and his arms are open let's run to our father